Hello, lovely people. How are you? I hope you're doing well. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to say today's guest is one of my favourite authors ever, Jill Mansell. Jill writes romantic comedies and is on her 35th book, just the 35th. She's sold over 14 million copies of her books all over the world. I mean, 14 million. But what you may not know is that for 18 years, Jill worked for the NHS in the field of clinical neurophysiology. But then everything changed, all because of a magazine article. Jill talks about swapping careers with a young baby, keeping going when the going gets tough, being asked if she's friends with Madonna, and what happened when she met her own heroine, Jilly Cooper. It meant such a lot to be able to interview one of my own heroines and inspirations for my writing here on the next chapter. Jill is just so humble and modest about her incredible achievements. She's also open, warm, funny and full of joy and hope, just like her books. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to indie author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapters in the hope it might help you with your next chapter. Or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, Jill Mansell. Jill Mansell, I can't quite believe I'm saying this, but welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. It's my pleasure, Ellie. It's lovely to see you again. <laughs> oh, honestly, Jill, well, you know, because our paths have crossed before um, when I've come to interview you, but you know, you know what you've meant to me and to have you as sort of one of my favourite authors of all time here on this podcast uh, is just so special. So I really, really appreciate it. So thank you. So we will start, as we always do, with the prologue. Now, you grew up in the Cotswolds, is that right? And you went to school in Tetbury. Yes, yes, yes. I grew up in, um, it's called Acton Turville, a little tiny village just next to next door to Badminton, which a few more people have heard of because of the horse trials. And um, yes, I mean, it was idyllic in lots of ways. Um, it was a really sort of our, our head teacher in our tiny little village school was an ex-Spitfire pilot. <laughs> because <laughs> uh, I'm so old <laughs> no, you're not. Um, so yes our little school I think we had about 20 um, pupils in the whole school um, so we didn't learn the things that most curriculums required us to learn but we learned all about sort of poisonous toadstools and villagey <laughs> oh, things the important things <laughs> exactly exactly and what kind of pupil were you at school um I, well, to begin, I, I can't really remember when I was that age, but uh, I suppose once we got to Tetbury School, which was like a big shock because that was a big school, the comprehensive. Um, I think I was, um, I don't know, I was a pretty good girl, really. Mm. I mean, my parents were quite strict, I think. So I, I always wanted to do well mm. and... I, I could do well in some things, not in others. Mm. It's like it's so funny because my daughter did a degree in French and she's so good at languages. And languages are my, I can't do them. I just can't. <laughs> so when, at school, French was a nightmare. Science, I hated all the sciences at school. Mm. Um, and I didn't do any science GCSEs or O-levels as they were then known. 
Um, but I did like English and I loved art. Art was my main thing. Art was always going to be the thing that I wanted to do with my life. Mm. And you did like reading books, didn't you? I heard you speaking on another interview that I think um, as a child you were a big fan of Enid Blyton books, but you'd reread them. You keep reading the same ones. Um, yes, I just loved it. I was talking about that, funnily enough, with somebody yesterday. I never wanted to read new books. My mum used to despair because I only ever wanted to read books that I'd already read because I knew that I liked them. So I wasn't going to risk being disappointed, I suppose. It, was. I mean... <laughs> it sounds bizarre, but I used to just reread my old favourite books. And now I can't do it, even though I would love to do it. I find it really... There's so many books to read, isn't there, and so little time that mm. I, I never reread books now. And was there anyone around you? Was there anyone who was an author? No, no, nobody. Your parents, what, what did they do? Uh, my mum was a housewife, as they were back then, uh, and my dad worked as a scientist at British Aerospace. Right, so completely different. And did you, did you have siblings? Just a, a, a half brother, a brother, yeah. Okay, okay. So, so the idea of being an author that just wouldn't have even. You said you liked art, but that really wouldn't have crossed your mind at all then. No, I tell you what, it was when I was sort of about eleven or twelve. I started. Um, I we didn't have the Sunday Times, but my uncle, who lived in Coventry, had the Sunday Times and used to bring his paper down with him when he um, came to visit us on Sundays. And I discovered the columns of Julie Cooper in the Sunday Times and I just fell in love with them and so he realised how much I loved them so then he used to cut them out of his Sunday Times when he wasn't coming down to see us and then, so when he did arrive I'd have a little envelope of cuttings of her columns Brilliant. and um, and it was just like Christmas so I think Julie Cooper was my earliest um, literary love I suppose yeah. I mean more so than Enid Blyton because I didn't know who Enid Blyton was but but Ginny Cooper was writing about her life um, and and it, they were funny and witty and just I just loved them. Mm. And it didn't occur to me that I could ever write books or well, back then she hadn't written any novels. Mm. But that was definitely the start of loving somebody's writing mm. and style of writing and so much that. Yeah, and she know. lives She lives in the Cotswolds as well, doesn't she? Yeah, she's in Bisley, yeah. Mm, so it's interesting, is that you were, you were, it started, well, we'll, we'll, we'll come on to, we will come on back to that, because you then, so you left school, now you worked, you worked at the Burden Neuro, I can't even say it, Jill, the Burden Neurological Institute in Bristol as a neurophysiologist, did I think, I think... <laughs> I think I may have said that right. So, if I said that right, how did you go from leaving school in Tetbury to doing that? Um, I was 16 and I'd started A-levels and I it was quite a shock from having a full curriculum of all-day-long lessons, going from O-levels to A-levels, um, all of a sudden you had more free periods. I was doing three A-levels and, um, and another O-level. Um, and I still had more free periods in the week than lessons because you're supposed to get on and do research or something in your own time, <laughs> which none of us did no, in our no. sixth form room. Why would <laughs> you? You played David Bowie albums. Of course you did. Of course you did. 
And um, so after a term of that, my mum said, well, this is rubbish. You're not doing any work and you know, you're just going to waste your life there. So why don't we find you a job? And she found um, a little advert in the local paper. And I can remember it exactly because it said, would you like to be an electroencephalographic technician? Crikey. <laughs> in the field of clinical neurophysiology. Wow. And so my dad had done a little bit of work from British Aerospace in the Burden. He knew a couple of the doctors there, not the doctors that were employing me. It used to be divided into half institute and half hospital. And uh, he knew the people in the institute half and, and I was applying for a job in the NHS hospital part. Um, but they gave me an interview and the trouble was it was all chemistry, biology, physics and electronics. Mm. And they were all my least favourite things. Um, but they said, well, if you promise to get some O-levels in those subjects, then I said, all right, then I will. Wow. And so they gave me the job. Wow. And uh, so I had to go and do the o But all the things that I'd hated about physics and electronics, in theory, for O-levels, I when you were actually working in a hospital and it became practical rather than theoretical, yeah. it was and the job was just fascinating. Um, I absolutely loved it. One of my friends who I worked with there for 18 years, she's just retired after 40 years there. Wow. And and people do stay there because it's a it was a great place to work. The staff were fantastic. The work was so interesting. Every day was different. Mm. We also worked at the um all the different intensive care units and operating theatres we used to work during, um, do the EEGs, mm. putting the electrodes on the head during um, brain operations and uh, in the intensive care unit, finding out whether people were brain dead sometimes, mm. well, quite often really. Mm. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was just a, an extraordinary job. And it wasn't the job, the kind of job where it was easy to move around because there weren't those that many positions available mm. because it's quite a, a rarefied thing. Mm. So you sort of stay there. And, and I was happy to stay in Bristol anyway, because I love Bristol. Mm. But so that was it. And, and I was there for 18 years in the end. That's amazing, isn't it? But going back to that, like what you said, you know, you didn't like at school physics and chemistry. And you hit, like we, I was speaking about this with a friend last night that you know, at school, you're sort of made to do all these different subjects and you think, oh, I don't like that. I'll never be good at that. But then that just goes to show, isn't it, when you can actually apply it to real life and it means yeah. something, it's a totally yeah. different ball game, isn't it? Absolutely. And uh, and I suppose over those years, even though I didn't even dream of writing for most of those years, um, I've used so many of the ideas, the things that I came across as sort of small plot lines in books mm. i suppose mm. because we you know we had some fantastic characters i'm sure you i'm sure you, i mean i'm sure you saw it all again which we'll come on to but so when you say going back to a neurophysiologist that's what you say what you were doing was it with the eegs and and you were monitoring i think I, my title is clinical neurophysiological <laughs> technologist i mean it sounds I amazing it sounds really clever yeah <laughs> But you learn on the job and you take exams while you're training. So yeah. um, it's like when you start off as a student nurse and then you become a you know qualified nurse after so many years. 
Yeah. It's a similar kind of thing. How lovely. And so were you still reading at this stage as well? Were you reading lots? No, I don't think I was um, for ages. I used to be a reader as a young child and then the hormones kicked in and then boys became more important. <laughs> romance. <laughs> and I, mo- romance. And so I think I pretty much stopped reading. And again, my mum, who was a reader, she I remember once she paid me 10 pence if I would read um, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. Wow. And she said, well, don't try and cheat because I'll test you on it. <laughs> and did you? And I did, yes. 10p was more then than it is now, obviously. Um, but yes, I just wasn't into reading. And then I got ill when I was about 20. And then I was recuperating from surgery at that age. And so I was just suddenly stuck in a bed for weeks on end. And so with nothing else to do. So then I was sort of forced to read. And so I got back into reading. I suddenly rediscovered how lovely it was. Mm. And from then on, I think I've um, I, I became a really enthusiastic reader again mm. after that. And didn't you read Jilly Cooper then? Uh, yes, I think so. I, I just remember, I'm, I can't really remember. I liked the big fat, um, it was before the sort of bogbuster stage actually, mm. just before that kicked off. So it was more like the historical great big fat historical books mm. um I, I only had because i was stuck in bed so i could only have what my mum would bring for me <laughs> it was we didn't have amazon then <laughs> <laughs> they were or a kindle or anything like that but how lovely though how you know to do that and then to re reignite that that love because because then it was when you were at work i think when you were in a waiting room and you picked up a magazine and you saw an article about yeah, women yeah. who write fiction. Now, I'm going to say it again, because I think as well, Jilly Cooper featured in this article. So there's obviously a big Jilly Cooper link, but there, I think it was about four women and they wrote best-selling fiction. Yes. And um, it's so bizarre. I mean, I think I always took a book to read at lunchtime in my, uh, at work, but I finished a book or I didn't have a book to read that day. So I went out into the hospital waiting room and picked up um, a copy of the sunday express color supplement and there was the article in there which i still have all these years later but must be 40 years ago um and and it was about four women who'd been very impoverished and struggled um and couldn't afford cars or holidays or anything and i thought well i'm impoverished i can't afford a car or a holiday (laughs) and they transformed their lives by becoming best-selling authors so i thought i'll have a go wow okay so you just started and had you met your husband by this stage um no i don't think so no okay i don't think so so you're working you were working um so you could come so you came home and what you would just you just started writing Oh, hang on a minute. No, this, this, um, no, I, I was married once, and so that marriage was over. So then I had um, lodgers. So okay. I think I came home and started writing. And yes, I had lodgers, and we were, I was working full time, and we had quite a busy social life. We used to go out practically every night of the week. Very good. And um, I had a lovely time, really, then. Mm. But uh, they were both very keen on watching. Um, EastEnders and Coronation Street yeah. and I gave up EastEnders and Coronation Street and while they were downstairs watching it I went upstairs and wrote. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, 
and and then it, I think it took me two years to write my first book. And did you have any idea what you were doing? Did you did you just write how you felt because you'd read by this stage? Obviously, you you were w- well read. Did you just did you just start writing? Oh, hang on a minute. I've missed a bit out. Sorry, I get hang confused. Hang on, Jill. <laughs> so part, we want all, we want the details here. We okay. love the details. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, when I read that article, I thought, right, I'm going to have a go at that. And then I discovered that um, very close to where I lived in Bristol, there was an evening class in creative writing. Okay. So I joined the evening class and it was run by a teacher who'd written for Mills and Boone. And the two of the writers in that Sunday Express article were also writers for Mills and Boone. And at that time, they they could become millionaires mm. like within a couple of years or something. They could write them really quickly and make an absolute fortune. So I thought, oh, that's what I'll, I'll do then. Mm. I'll do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why not? Why wouldn't you? And so you wrote a Mills and Boone kind of I star book. five or six, I think. Wow. And Mills and Boone, and I sent them off. And Mills and Boone, they were always very nice. They said, you can write well, but Good. your books are too funny and there isn't enough depth of emotion in them oh. because Mills and Boone are, back then they weren't funny at all. But mm. I think nowadays they do have more comedy in their books sometimes. But their main thing is the depth of emotion. And they said more of that, less, no, cut out the humour and more emotion. And I just found that I couldn't really do it. And I think I'd read Julie Cooper's Riders by then and a couple of her other books. So after being turned down five or six times by Mills and Boone, I then thought, right, I will write the kind of book that I like to read, which was the Jilly Cooper style. But mine didn't have horses in because I didn't know anything about horses. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just sort of a bit of comedy, lots of drama, um, some glamorous people and just all sorts going on. And I think a lot of people do this when they first write a book. You sort of chuck every single idea you've got Mm. into that book. which sort of me now, 35 books later, I'm thinking, that. oh, damn it. I wish I hadn't used up quite so many ideas in that first book. <laughs> Spread it out a little bit. There, yes. Well, we're coming, I mean, I just, I still can't quite believe that 35 books. It's just, it's incredible. But but staying just there then for the moment. So, so you were right. So you were sending off to, so once Mills and Boone said that, did you start sending off to agents? Or were you sending um, to publishers? I didn't with the Mills and Boone because they didn't deal with agents at the time. And I think also agents weren't particularly interested in Mills and Boone writers uh, writers at the time because they didn't need them. Mm. Um, So it wasn't until I wrote my first big proper book, I I say proper book, it was my first book, um, that I started inquiring from agents and I think it was just like Goldilocks and the Three Bears for me. Mm. I sent off to the first agent, which I found through the Writers and Artists Yearbook, which is in, I think they're in every library still. Mm. Um, and the first agent turned me down and said, this book is too confusing, too much happens in it. Um, no, can't. It, it's not publishable. So obviously I was pretty gutted. Mm, sure, yeah. <laughs> and then I sent it off to a second agency and they said, this book has not enough happening in it and it's too boring. Um, so it's not publishable. And the third agent, because at the time you had to photocopy all the pages and, um, and then post off this massive manuscript. 
but I think mine was about 700 pages. Mm. And then you had to enclose the return postage as well. So it's all getting pretty expensive mm. by then. Mm. And um, so I thought, I'll just send it off to one more. And if, if they say no, then that's it, I'll give up. And so I sent it off to the third agent and she phoned me up one day and said, I love it. I love it. Please, can I be your agent? I know I can sell this manuscript. Oh, my goodness me. I mean, oh my! can you, I mean, just, can you imagine though? Because that's three is not, I mean, these days where you can email, you know, 20 virtually in a day. But yeah. that, so three, and A, how wrong those first two were. But that yeah. also, if you had sent it to somebody else, and you hadn't, you know, life could have just been so different, couldn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I mean, who knows? That was my plan that I would just give up then because yeah. I just couldn't afford to do it anymore. And obviously it wasn't good enough. And I didn't know then that people got turned down by dozens of agents like JK Rowling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't know then. I just thought, okay, I failed. And then, oh, no, I failed again. Yeah. Um, so if I fail a third time, that's it. Obviously, it's never going to happen. Yeah. So I could just have given up. Gone back yeah. to watching EastEnders and Coronation Street. Yeah. <laughs> But that wasn't that wasn't the plan. So, so in 1991. So was that the book Fast Friends? That was your first yes. book. Wow. Okay. So that was then published. And what was that like? That first. I mean, going back there. I mean, you say that now. I mean, 35 books later. But my goodness, go back to that first time when you saw your first book and you held it in your hands. How did that feel? Um. Oh, it was it was just amazing. It was it was it wasn't something that I'd ever really thought would come true, that I'd ever really thought would happen. It's like thinking you can be on top of the pops and be number one and yeah. <laughs> it's one of those sort of distant sort of hopes, but you don't really expect it to ever happen. Um it was amazing and my publishers then they sort of did as much as they could and they got the books sort of onto the bookshelves and uh, it didn't get into any charts or anything but uh, it went quite well and then a lot of people talk about the second book being the difficult one to write mm. but for me it was the easiest mm. because I was so so thrilled and overwhelmed that the first book had been taken and you know, the publishers, I go up to London and they say, well, Prince Charles was sitting in that chair yesterday that you're wow. sitting on. And, yeah, <laughs> and I was sort good. of meeting glamorous London types, <gasps> which had never happened to me before. Yeah. So I was so overwhelmed that the second book just poured out of me and was the easiest one that I've ever written. Yeah. Um, after that, it got hard again. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I can understand that. And again, going back again, back to that, that, that first moment when you, when you had your book, that moment as well, when you knew that you had the book deal, you know, that moment, what did you do? How did you celebrate? Um, I went, I'd gone home and my lodgers had gone out. So there was nobody else in the house. Ugh. And um, so I went to the shop. In my head, I went and bought some champagne, but of course I couldn't have afforded champagne. I think I bought some <laughs> carver or something and took it round to my friend's house and we celebrated. And then we went down to the pub and I got quite drunk quite quickly. Quite right, quite and right. Everybody was so thrilled for me. Mm. Um, it was it was absolutely brilliant. Mm, and then sort of it take after that, it sort of it takes about 18 months before the book actually hits the shelves. Yeah. So it's all very slow so were you still working in your in your job then at that stage yes 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 and it was so funny because sometimes I'd sort of have 
quite aggressive patients sort of trying to rip my hair out and bite my face and the phone would be ringing and I'd pick up the phone I'd sort of hold the patient on the bed with one arm and um, and grab the phone with the other because that's what you do when working in the hospital and there's nobody else to answer the phone and there'd be my agent saying oh Jill yes I wonder if you'd like to come to the British Book Awards um <laughs> And, uh, and you sort of, oh, yeah, okay. And then you go back to your sort of real life. Yeah, I mean, just amazing. So how long was it then until you left your job? Uh, about two years. Um, I accidentally got pregnant with my daughter. Um, but then I just thought, well, this is a good time to, because it's very difficult to work in a hospital and sort out childcare mm. Um when when you can't just say oh sorry i can't come in today yeah. because you have to yeah um in those kind of jobs um so i just uh thought this was the time to give up the day job and have a little baby who'll just sit there quietly sleeping all day long yeah and let right me get books. on with the writing exactly because that's <laughs> that's what babies do they just sit yeah. there <laughs> yeah. they're really so good at the wake up call ah. <laughs> So what did, so what, I mean, I love the romance, Jill, because this is obviously, you know, and the, the lovely happy endings you have in your books. But the reality is, as mothers uh, and fathers listening to this, is that um, their babies don't necessarily do that. So how, how did you do it? How did you do it? I just I worked really hard. And I think I did one book a year because that's what they like to contract you to do. Um, because then the books can come out at the same time in hardback and then paperback at the same time each year. Mine come out in hardback in January and then paperback in June. Um, I and so I don't know. I just she really cried a lot and rarely slept, rarely slept, mm. and it was a bit of a nightmare. But you sort of have to do it because otherwise you'll you risk losing your contract, mm. or they'll the publishers will say, well, she's let us down, so we won't bother with a new contract. Um, so you kind of think of what you're going to write next and then when the baby finally goes to sleep for half an hour you just write it down as, as fast as you can mm -hmm. and somehow or other I did do that probably the answer is that I have got progressively lazier as the years have gone by because the kids have grown <laughs> up and they're no bother anymore and I still only write one book a year <laughs> yeah but that quite right Jill because there's a bit of time off in Lou there you know because I those years would have been intense I think so. <laughs> and so well, and also now we have the internet I used not to have the internet to distract me yes all day long yeah but also if you were looking things up or anything like that that must have taken a bit a bit longer for you as well it and did I don't know how I um I'd written something about somewhere overseas and I, I, I had no idea that this island had been absolutely decimated by a volcano uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'd write I remember I remember them saying oh you've written here about somebody driving round and round the Trevi fountain and no, you can't do that okay, <laughs> that's news to me as well thank you wow but, but back then there was no way really of no. finding that out so no. um, and I should yeah. say as well because you write and you, you've always written all your books by hand haven't you Yes. I mean, that again. So you would just be, you wouldn't even then like tap it out. You would be handwriting and yeah. Lydia would just be like, you know, asleep. 
that's just incredible yeah. well when she got to toddler stage she went through a phase of scrumpling up all my pages scribbling over all the pages mm. getting a pen and scrawling over all my handwritten pages oh my goodness me <laughs> i'm sure see again i think you're allowed this time off now you're allowed it you're absolutely allowed it and and also because i was listening to you on something as well recently and i hadn't quite realized this because it was a few you'd written i mean i mean it's amazing you'd written quite a few books before you did go into the top 10 um bestsellers didn't you it was because i know you and you've not sort of left really there since but it, it you were really still building yourself as an author at this stage weren't you yes i mean with my first publisher i mean they tried their best because they wanted my books to do well but the sales dropped with each book and uh, after five or six books they said no they're not going to renew my contract I think I was, um, I don't know, two small children, really sort of struggling. Um, I thought, oh God, no, now what do I do? Mm. Um, and several publishers turned my, the book, the, the next book that I'd written, already written, they turned it down. Mm. They said, oh, sorry, we thought we might be interested. Now we've read the book, we're not. Oh, no. um, but then Headline came along and, uh, and they said, we'll have her. Wow. So I always say they sort of, scraped me out of the gutter really and uh, and they took me on and uh and a couple of the other publishers have since said well you were the one that got away from us you know we were wrong um but again you know it's not their fault they they were going by the sales figures so yes it wasn't an overnight success i wouldn't want to be an overnight success i don't think i think it's scary and alarming and uh wrecks you really i i was sort of um started off the first book quite well bit of a slow decline and then moved to headline and then for some reason after that the i think they just got nice really nice covers that people liked and the book sales took off after that and i think it was my seventh book seventh uh, or possibly eighth that was the first one to get into the sunday times top 10. and how did that feel amazing <laughs> I mean, because again, there that you you could have stopped there, couldn't you? A lot of people listening to this will think, "Well, hang on, how did she carry on?" Because you know, if you've done it, that's re- I think that's so hard. It's almost harder at the beginning when you're being rejected. There's a, a slight naivety, I suppose. Um, but when you've been going, you've written those that number of books. Yeah, it's very, yeah. and you're really in it. Like I think it's like you know, you're that would have been so easy for you to stop there. And you didn't. I think Do you know, incredible. I almost could have done, but I think what saved me was the fact that I had, by the time the publishers said they didn't want the next book, they, they'd read it and said they didn't want it, but I had already written it. Written it. Mm. So my agent said, well, let me send it out to some you know, other publishers. Um, and so if I hadn't written it, if they'd said that they weren't going to renew my contract when I hadn't got a, another book already written, that would have been, I think it would have been much harder. Mm. And it is, it's devastating. And I see it with my friends all the time still. Mm. And, and it can happen to any of us at any time. And, and you know, publishers take me on, uh, overseas publishers, the translations, they don't always become bestsellers. Uh, sometimes they take me on for a couple of books and then they say, no, that didn't do too well. So they they don't renew a contract mm. and and how do you now today how do you cope with that you know because you know well you'll find it you'll find someone where it will work uh yes i suppose so you just well i suppose you get a thicker skin over the years because um you get reviews from i mean in the first 
years, it was just reviews in magazines and newspapers, if you were lucky. Um, but you tended not, especially not with my style of book, the rom-com type thing, you tended not to get, um, well, many reviews at all, actually, but you wouldn't get um, highly critical reviews because in magazines, they tend to just choose the magaz choose the books that they like mm. to review. Mm. Um, but then with the internet came all the review sites and people can say whatever they want to say and tell you exactly what they think of your rubbish book. <laughs> never. So you do, you just get used to that. I mean, a lot of authors never read their reviews. Mm. Um, I, I went through a phase when I read all of them all the time. And sometimes they're really useful because if quite a few people have the same criticism, then I'll think, oh, okay, that's valid. I'll take note of that and, and change my next book to take that into account, mm -hmm. which I think is really useful. Mm. Um, it's a fine but, line, though, isn't it, between that being useful and then it just sort of get, you know, weighed down. It's where the, I suppose it's where the reviewers come from, isn't it? If it's from a good place or a, just a very angry place. Yes. And some, some get, um, you'll get an angry, personally sort of directed. Um, and sometimes you find out who the person is who posted that. And there's somebody who maybe asked you to review their book and you didn't have time. Mm. Something, you know, these things can happen. Mm -hmm. um, but you do, you get a thicker skin and you just think, oh, well, no, and nobody can like anything. Mm. Um, when I get upset about bad reviews like that, I tend to um, look up reviews of my absolute favorite reads and see that they've just they've got one star reviews too and yeah. people telling them they're rubbish <laughs> yeah 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 it's the key is is just you do something you enjoy and you just keep going i mean that is yeah. it's as simple as that uh, not to boil it but but it is true because but and i know you also i do know that you're very modest so i don't want to embarrass you but when i was researching this jill i hadn't quite grasped so yes like you said you've written 35 books now i've seen different i think you've sold something 14 million copies <laughs> i mean jill and not only that you um one of your books was it take a chance on me that won an rna a romantic novelist association comedy award but then mm -hmm. in 2015 you won outstanding achievement for the rna which is that is like for anyone listening who isn't sure that's a bit like it's really like winning an oscar i think i think it's totally in the book world. it's like being close to death it feels like being close no, to death. It is not. it's not it's an outstanding achievement but so okay i mean i i i haven't even scratched the surface but all of those are huge i mean they're just gigantic so going back to the those first moments so there you were you were writing your book you know hand and and lydia was was you know crying as a baby to think now 14 million books I, I know, mean, it's can crazy. It, can you, how can you, can you get your head around that? I think after sort of two or three years, my publisher said, you've now sold 70,000 books. And I, and I think, is it, oh, I might be wrong now, but I'm saying Wembley Stadium held 70,000 yeah, people. Yeah, oh, I'm sure, yeah. So, and, and that was the only way that I could sort of imagine that huge number to fill up Wembley Stadium with people reading my book. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and 14 million, obviously, you can't begin to comprehend, but mm. uh, that's in you know, lots of different languages and 
Yeah, because because I have a, a very close Dutch friend, and she's like in Holland. You, Jill Mansell, you know that yeah, it's you're 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 very big in Holland, and that, I am big. <laughs> I didn't quite know how to phrase that politely, but you are. She's like she's like a superstar. I know it's it's really strange, and that's the the country that sells. You know, apart from the UK, they they um, are my other main country, and I go over there really. Um, you know, quite often, well, apart from the last couple of years, obviously. Um, and it's lovely to go over there because I think one time I was over there and somebody from a magazine said to me, she was interviewing me, and she said, so are you friends with Madonna? Oh, wow. And I said, no. Oh, oh. <laughs> Why? You're too busy. Oh, we just imagined that you, you would be best friends with Madonna. <gasps> that was when Madonna was living in London. Wow. <laughs> I could see it though, Jill, because you said you liked to go out quite a lot when you were younger, and that's—I could see you two being quite good friends. <laughs> I used to have some lacy gloves in my time. Yes, there you go. Um, so, so yeah, so I mean, so I know, I know you're asked this all the time, but thirty-five books. I mean, my, one of my—I know I've said this to you before. One of my favorite books ever, *To the Moon and Back*. That is actually one of my favorite books of all of all time. Not because the main character is called Ellie, but I loved that, <laughs> that, that because. Um, the uh zach and just they were in primrose hill and just oh anyway i won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it but each book that i read i mean i know it's similar themes but they are different characters and there are different worlds and you create these different worlds so how do you do it now you know 30 going into your 36 book how how do you keep doing it oh i don't know um i should have kept spreadsheets for a start um I um, I wish I'd kept sort of lists of certain plot points. Um, some I sort of, I, I just have to try not to overuse certain plot strands. Um, and sometimes I'm happily writing away and thinking, oh, this is brilliant, this is brilliant. And then I suddenly realise I used the same um, plot device. The last book I wrote, um, it's really difficult because I tend to have a lot of um, intertwining plots in my books um it just makes me wish that i'd never started in, in that way um <laughs> uh but i i do i sort of try and i look through my list of my books i'm writing my 35th at the moment not the 30th i you know i haven't finished the oh, 35th. oh well that is slacking um, but, jill you're uh, slacking <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's well it's you just try and think up new ideas or you watch television and steal ideas from there mm -hmm. um you or we've got the internet i like problem pages in magazines you just think of a, a come up you spot something and you think oh that's a really nice idea for a you know a character that that could happen to them and i'm pretty sure i haven't done that before so that's what i tend to do and i think especially with romantic fiction you have a, a, a main character and another main character and we all know that they're going to end up together at the end but what's going to keep them apart mm. and that's the most difficult part thinking of reasons why two people legitimately can't be together mm. and you have to come up with a different one each time mm. that's hard that's the worst one. yeah I, bet, I mean i bet it is because you write with the tv on don't you Yes, yes. It's just a bit of company and I'm not always paying attention to it because um, sometimes I'll think, oh, I was looking forward to watching that bit that was coming up next. Um, but and then I've written all the way through and haven't noticed. But then other times I'll just sit and gaze at it and 
when the people on the TV will say something and that'll prompt an idea that I can use. Amazing, amazing. Because I heard you speak as well, you heard an amazing story, was it on this morning? Um, Or somebody, it was a phone in and somebody had lied about their age or it was something, it was was brilliant, wasn't it? Well, it was a son who'd um, phoned in to say it was going to be his 40th birthday very soon and they wanted a big 40th birthday party. Um, him and his wife and family but the trouble was his mother was going out with um, so he was coming up to 40 his mother was about 65 but she was very young looking for her age so she'd met this lovely person man and um, and lied about her age I think she told him that she was 48 and she looked young enough that she was able to get away with it but he said so that means I can't have a party we all have to lie about our age when we meet him. Um, and he said, it's just getting more and more complicated. What can we do? She won't tell, she's scared to tell him her real age in case he finishes with her. Um, and so anyway, in the studio on this morning, they all, it was Richard and Judy back then and Denise, um, they had an argument about whether she, the mother should say something or not. And, and I, well, the thing is, we never found out the answer. We never no. found out what happened. But but I used that plot line in my book Quite because right. I thought it was fantastic. That's brilliant. I wonder, I mean, who knows, Jeff? Somebody's listening to this. They, you never know. There could be a small chance that one yes. of those people, you're going to have to tell us, you're going to have to tell Jill what happened. <laughs> yes, please. I want to know. I want to know. Wow, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And also, um, also, I, I have heard you say as well, because your books do have happy endings and that's what I love about it because I know I know life doesn't have happy endings but also isn't it life does have lots of hope and that's what I love about with your books that you you're left feeling that there's hope um because absolutely it's just we we need it don't we we absolutely need it and I remember hearing as well that once you didn't you write a book where there was a, a not a happy ending or something bad happened yes well I, I, I think so Amazon had got started and I was seeing these reviews and obviously a few people who aren't sort of accustomed to the way romantic novels work said oh well I guessed from the beginning you know as soon as I saw those two characters I guessed that they would end up together at the end it's so predictable um <laughs> So I said to my, so I wrote, the. I think I said, just wrote the book before I sent it off to my publisher, but I killed off the main character a few chapters from the end. And I thought that'll serve them right. That'll serve these people right when they say they're predictable. This isn't predictable. And my editor said, no, Jill, you can't do that. Mm. She said, but for every sort of 0.1% person who complains about predictability in a romantic novel, um, 99.99% of them read them because they know that there's mm. going to be a really satisfying happy ending. Yeah. So I had to revive him yeah. and um, bring him back to life. Oh. And... <laughs> well, you know, your past experience was would have come in handy there as well. But just, yeah, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And do you, because also, you know, you always write lovely settings as well, you know, be it Primrose Hill in London or but in Cots, fictitious Cotswold villages or your Cornish books, they're, they're lovely. And is that part of it for you as well, for you when you're in your, I mean, you've got a, a lovely home, but when you're at home that you can take yourself into this really gorgeous world? It is, yes, because sometimes I read a book and sort of a type of literary type book. I couldn't possibly say any names. I won't do that. But uh, you read the book and you think, 
these characters are really introspective and dull and boring and they live quite often in dull places yeah gray and black <laughs> and they're not just they're just not happy with their lives or where they live or anything um and i just think well i'm not enjoying reading this mm. so i i know that my readers love my beautiful settings uh, the next book that uh, comes out um i've set in it's sort of a bit like nailsworth in stroud mm. which i think is a lovely little market town it it's small enough that people know each other mm. but it's still got a real community spirit mm. and um so i used to set some of my books in london and some of london is very nice but i don't particularly enjoy going up there when i have to mm. um so i did a poll on twitter and facebook a few years back and i said i write my books either set in sort of the southwick cornwall bristol bath um or the coxwolds or london and which do people prefer mm. and loads of people loved um the cotswolds and loads of people loved the cornish mm. set books um quite a few people like bristol and bath because mm they're beautiful places as well but hardly anybody wanted a book set in London no. <laughs> so I well, stopped writing those right. <laughs> I did like that but I did like that Primrose Hill one though Jill but I do I like your I do like your Cornish yeah it's like it's lovely it's just part it's all just so lovely the last one with is it Lachlan and Amber and him in his restaurants oh, yeah. and her doing her sculptures and it was just that was that was lovely and I'd recently been to Porth Leven um, and I said to my husband, it felt like I was there, you know, it was um, behind yeah. the scenes somewhere like that. It was really lovely. Well, I set um, three books in, uh, a, uh, I made up a little small town on the coast of Cornwall um, called St. Caris, but mm. it was, it's sort of a, inspired by St. Ives. Mm. And so I've done three set there, but all with different characters. Mm. And then the one that you've just mentioned, which is my one that comes out in paperback, um, in two weeks' time. Um, should I tell you? I've just yeah, had to check. That's all right. I'll, I'll put it in at the end, Jill. I'll, I'll make sure. <laughs> um, I should really know it, but I invented a little place called Lanrock. Yeah. And uh, and I I loved inventing it so much that the book that I'm currently writing is also set there. Good. Because Good. it's just lovely to go back there and you yeah. think, oh, I know, you walk down that street and you get there and you yeah. get down to the sea and there's the cliffs. Yeah, and just to have that sort of the imagination, again, you know, uh, all the dreadfulness in the world, but also oh. the imagination is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Because you can just take yourself to that That's gorgeous it. place. And the characters. It's lovely for me to write these characters because I, I sort of... The, the kind of characters that you would like to be friends with in real life yeah and that's what so many readers say to me that's what they love about them yeah yeah you do and do you are you a romantic person yes I, yes i suppose so mm. yes mm. i it... love a i love a romantic story um give me some gossip and you know tell me what's going on between some people it's all lovely yeah. and uh, and i sort of try and want to sort of control other people's relationships because yeah. i'm so used to doing it with the fictitious characters it's true <laughs> yeah you know like do you put try and put people people together a little bit yes yeah. yes you can't I, help it no i love that and something i'm going to just ask you and i hope you don't mind me asking you this i've heard as well before because obviously you know i'm i'm very new at all of this and starting out but i i like i love romance but i the 
S-E-X, Jill. I, you know, it's the opposite end of the Jilly Cooper. So I find it even hard to talk about as a 48-year-old woman. But you you do it in your books very well, don't you? Because you, you, impl- you imply, but you don't necessarily go into lots of detail. Well, that's because when, because I write all my books by hand, um, my mum, when my mum was alive, she was, um, she was typing my books up for me <laughs> to get sent off to the publishers. <laughs> so that's why there wasn't any of that. Quite right. <laughs> I, can, I can understand. <laughs> and now my daughter types them. So that's yeah. even worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when she started, I think she was about sort of 70, 60, I think she was 16 or 17 when she started typing them. And uh, and if there were sort of any really old characters, like in their 30s, kissing, oh. she'd just be typing away. She'd go, oh, gross, OAP sex. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I just think, I don't know, I, I it doesn't come naturally to, to write the sex scenes. And I don't think you need them in a book. No. Um, no, I like, no, but you know, like you know, anybody can pick up. Well, exactly. And there are, you know, you can feel it. You can feel between the couple and, you know, in the last like, Amber and Lockton, when, well, I can't say too much because some people, if it's not out in paperback, people might not read it. But you, you, you get the, you, it's the chemistry, isn't it? It's the chemistry that gets, gets you it. going. Yes. That, yes. I, I love that. The, I love depicting the chemistry and the characters, um, the way they talk to each other, the way they interact. I hate the word banter, but yeah, yeah, I know the yeah. word. Yeah, I know what you mean. I just, oh, that chemistry. Just, just flirty, me. flirty conversations. Yeah. Love it. I love, I love it. it. Yeah, yeah. I'm with. Well, I, I'm with you. And so Lydia, now because I know she doesn't live at home anymore, does she? Is she still type up your novels now? Yes, she does. Yes. Well, she's working full time as a teacher, um, and she absolutely loves it. But so yes, when I send her a great wadge of pages or she comes down and collects them or if she can't come down I photograph each of my handwritten pages yeah. and and email them to her and she does it that way and she's really good because she she knows my handwriting and she knows the kind of mistakes I make and um, if I have young characters saying the kind of things that young char- young characters wouldn't say she tells me what, how they you know really would speak yeah instead of me being like a 1950s <laughs> oh jolly totally cool. sticks. sick but how lovely that your mum used to do it and then that she still does it now it's just what a lovely what, what a lovely thing what a lovely thing so moving on to be continued what would you like to do next well um i don't know i mean i'm i'm still really enjoying writing my style of books and i know there's an audience waiting for them I did recently attend the Bristol Crime Festival um, simply because I'd heard so many things about it and it was just a, you know, a couple of miles from where I live and I just thought it's a shame not to go. It was really interesting. Several of my friends have moved from writing romantic fiction into psychological thrillers and crime and they've done fantastically well and they're far more likely to get sort of Netflix series and things. Um, so I just thought, I don't know, would I be able to do that? So I'm kind of intrigued. Mm. And so never say never. I have I have an opening paragraph and that's all I've got in my head because I know the kind of thing that I would try and write. Mm. It's very difficult because I don't know if I could write without humour. Mm. And I think with humour in crime writing, it's you've got to be really careful. Mm. Dexter, the Dexter books, they're really good for... Mm. Um, putting humour in crime mm. but uh, 
it's you've got to be careful not to be offensive in any way yeah and and something like uh say for example richard richard oddsman's books like a more cozy crime is that would mm. you is that too soft would you like to do something is that too similar to what you're doing now um, I think it's it's the plotting thing. I think when I write my kind of books, it's it's personal emotions, feelings, happy endings, love. Um, but he had to come up with an actually intricate plot. Mm. And I, when I read, I do like reading crime, and I read quite a bit of it. But I always wonder when, if you think of a really fantastic twist for a crime novel. How do you know that somebody hasn't already used that exact twist? Mm. And then you might get accused of plagiarism. I find that incredibly scary. Mm. So um, that, I think that's what scares me more mm. than anything else. Mm. Because you can't read every crime book there is. No. And you don't know what's already being done. Mm. Um, until maybe you've written it and then somebody tells you that it's already been done. Yeah. In which case you've wasted a year. Yeah, I suppose so. But then that said, sort of with my other hat on as a, as a journalist, um, and my husband does lots of crime journalism. I mean, it's real life dreadful things happening. But mm. some things, it's a, in a way, it's a little bit similar, almost, dare I say it, like with the romance, that it's the same thing does kind of happen, but it's just to different people and different stories of how it happens. And that that we see reflected in the news we do day Absolutely. after day. But it's... The, the same dreadful, awful thing has happened, but it's how it got there and why it happened and the stories behind yes. it that are always different. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe one day I will give it a real go mm. and and it, it would be fantastic. It would be really interesting. Mm. But I, I also know that I've got readers waiting for my next book as well. Yeah. So. Well, I need to, to be honest with you, I do need a happy ending. And I rely on you each January for a, to reboost, reboost um, as so many other people do. So acknowledgements, who would you like to thank who have who has helped you along the way? Um, gosh, well, I think it'd have to be Jilly Cooper. Definitely. Have you ever met Jilly Cooper? Yes, I did. Um, uh, I chatted to her briefly. I was completely overcome um, and she was so lovely. And it was when I was up at a, a big, fancy, uh, glitzy event up in London. And it was very snowy and I had to be back at work the next morning by nine o'clock. And I'd sort of said, oh, I don't know. You know I was gibbering probably because I didn't know what to say. But uh, she said, oh, you live in Bristol. And I said, yeah, I don't know how I'm going to get home. You know, I don't know if the trains are even going to run. I don't know how I'm going to get to work in the morning. And she said, well, I've got a driver taking me home tonight. So why don't you come home with me, stay at my house, and then um, and then you can get from my house to your, your hospital by nine o'clock the next morning. Oh, my goodness. And Which just goes to show what an absolutely gorgeous, lovely person, because I was just nobody. Wow. And she said that, and, and she genuinely really meant it. Did I you? couldn't do it because I couldn't guarantee getting back from where she lived in the oh. Cotswolds to Bristol. It was easier to go from London oh, wow. okay. down the main line. Wow. But, uh, but so um, she really has inspired me. I've read every book that she's ever written, obviously. Mm. Um, yeah, she's amazing. Mm. I don't know. Who else can I... Are you with the same agent that you have been all, all the way through? Yes, same mm. agent since the first time we, um, yes, she's the one that phoned me up and said, I know 
that we can publish your books and so i'd stick with her and she's been with you and in that dip as well and the sixth book and she's you know been with you all the way through that's incredible yes yeah Yeah, it's amazing well you know it's it's brilliant so so jill somebody listening to this so you i mean to be you know you've had a lot so you know from when you started out you didn't ever necessarily think you would ever be an author from reading a magazine article you know you had a completely different career um and then you know you also did the swap when you when you had a had a baby which is a a big time you know these great big changes that you that you've made and also you've carried on when it's got a bit tough you've managed to carry on so if somebody's listening to this and they're in a job but even maybe something that they do like but deep down they've got a niggle that there's something that they else they should be doing um first even if it's so first of all something that they know they should be doing something else but they don't know what that should be what would be your advice to that person um gosh it's it's really hard um i mean i've had letters from people that have said reading your books just gave me the courage to leave my abusive husband Mm. and and now i'm married to somebody really lovely and you've transformed my life thank you um, so that's amazing. Um, and in my books, people tend to sort of take those leaps into the unknown. But it depends what the, well, it's difficult if they don't know what they want to do. Mm. But if they do have an idea of how they would like to change their lives, but they're not sure if they dare take the risk. I think you have to weigh up what the what the risks are and how potentially important and life-changing they could be i don't know if i'm trying to think now if somebody could be a a lion tamer (laughs) Uh, they might what's the risk they might end up being eaten by a lion yeah Um, pretty risky but with writing as particularly you don't you're not really risking anything except a lot of your time not even you know any money really no if you can type your own manuscript and send it off I, 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 when I belonged to that evening class in, um, in Bristol, the best writer, four of us became published authors, but the best writer of all of us was a man who used to read out bits of his work each week. And he was a brilliant writer and he never had the courage to send his manuscript off mm. to agents or publishers because he couldn't bear the thought of being rejected, of the mm. book being turned down. So he never, ever sent them off um and then and then he died oh. without ever having anything happen you know that could have happened to yeah. him that could have transformed his life yeah. and i just always i've never forgotten him his name was roy and he was such a lovely man mm. but he was too scared of failure mm. to let anybody else see his work mm. um so i think try and take that leap i mean especially if it's something as low cost and low risk as yes you know you might write a book and it might get rejected you can self-publish now mm-hmm. and that doesn't even cost anything mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. um i thought well obviously i want to say go for it mm-hmm. but it depends what it is mm-hmm. and what you're risking and what things you know could go wrong but, but it's true i mean it, whether what if it goes right <laughs> exactly and whatever it is be it that if you want to be a, a writer or if you want to be a florist or an interior designer or a 
whatever it may be, a historian, anything at all, there is always going to be that element, isn't there? Even if you start t- admitting it out loud and you tell your friends. But I think yeah. like, going back to your day, you had your lovely lodgers around you and they were downstairs watching Coronation Street and EastEnders. But, you know, it, if you've got, if you look at, the, if you try and focus on the positive like your books do, it's a lovely magical thing isn't it and so what all right so you go to the pub and you 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 know you have a oh I'm fed up and this isn't worked but that must surely be better to have a go like that uh, because you've got you like you say you've got absolutely nothing to lose oh yeah completely completely and and it's you know it's transformed my life completely because I've been on book tours to Australia and Singapore New Zealand um Holland many many times yeah, I uh, lots, of pla- lots of places and I would never have done any of that um, I wouldn't have met the people that I've met and made friends with so many other writers it's it's just been so lovely uh, I you know I've been so lucky mm, I think did I see you on pointless or recently or tipping point there was something I saw you on pointless yeah look at that I mean anyone knows I mean it really is amazing Jill it is you you are very you are very when I speak to you and I know you're sitting here you're very modest and very humble but you know like and this the stories that you've done the idea now when you think about it you know how like how they have affected people it must be again a huge comfort to you and also know that you did exactly the right thing when you kept going Absolutely. I think the book that's had the most um, effect on readers has been Three Amazing Things About You, which is about organ donation, which I used to deal with a lot when I worked in the hospital. Um, But so many people after reading the book wrote to me and said that um, they just signed the organ donor register because as, as a result of reading the book. And so that was the thing that I'm most proud of out of all my books, because I've really, you know, maybe you can save people's lives indirectly mm. that way mm, it's amazing incredible. so your final your final words to someone listening to this if so with the even if now that they do know what they want to do you you would say just give it a go give it a go what have you got to lose definitely <laughs> and jill mansell fingers crossed everyone will have a happy ending thank you so much for being such a fabulous guest and for just filling our bookshelves and lives with joy Thank you so much, Ellie. It's been lovely speaking to you. So, wow, there you are. What did you think of that? Look, have a go. What have you got to lose? This is what Jill thinks. And look at what happened when Jill stopped watching Coronation Street and EastEnders. I mean, her whole world changed. I love this. How big is the risk, really? And is there a way you can give something a try without a major leap? And if you fancy a story filled with love and hope, Jill's latest book, Should I Tell You, is just that. Now, you can find out more about Jill at jillmansell.co.uk. You can keep up to date with me and my books at elliebarkerwrites.com. You're listening to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker, a flower pot production. So come on, do it. Give it a go. You don't even have to tell anyone yet. Jill thinks you can do it, and so do I. Speak soon. <laughs>